Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz's text, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments in Enchiridion. We are spending some time with Chemnitz as he lays the foundation of the office of the Holy Ministry. We took a look at that last week and will continue to do so this week. Last week, having covered substantively pages 26 and 27, the introduction to the office, and it is a very short outline format of a read, so if you are just joining us, you can get caught up very quickly. And today we'll be taking a look at page uh, 28 and following part 1, which is subtitled The Legitimate and Ordinary Call of Ministers of the Word and Sacraments. We recall from last week that in the Book of Concord in Lutheran Reformational Theology, and of course it goes much deeper than this, it goes through the history of the church, back to the scriptures themselves, but the office of the ministry is instituted by Christ for the preaching of the word so that that justification by grace through faith, that's free salvation in Christ Jesus that God has to give, is delivered through this office to people, that these people might be saved. And then this office has, according to Chemnitz on uh, page 26, has a threefold task to preach the divine word, to administer the sacraments of Christ, and then to rightly use the keys of the church. We'll be getting into uh, the office in terms of um, its formal call and the nature of that formal call in just a few moments. Let's begin with an invocation and with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, on page 28, the legitimate and ordinary call of ministers of the word and sacraments. At paragraph 5, we begin with this question. May one seek or undertake the ministry of the church who has neither learned the fundamental Christian doctrine, nor understands it, nor has the gift to teach others? What do you think? (laughs) Gennitz writes, by no means, for Paul commands Timothy and Titus to entrust the ministry to faithful and able men. Um, Here quoted 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul writes, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you do have a Bible with you, it would be good to open to 1 Timothy And at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to just take a brief look. I don't even know that we're going to read all the way through it. 
at the qualifications for overseers, the qualifications for pastors. So, spelling out what Paul means here by way of shorthand when he writes to faithful men, he defines more thoroughly at the beginning of his first epistle to Timothy. And a similar uh, uh, list here to 1 Timothy 3, where you'll see qualifications for overseers, can be found in Titus chapter 1. So just be aware that there are these two lists of qualifications. In 1 Timothy uh, 3, overseers, that's the language of bishop. And then in Titus 1, qualifications for elders... Elders is presbyterus, and those words, episcopos, presbyterus, are used interchangeably for the office. So it's an office with many different names, but it's one office. So if you're looking for the biblical handbook, so to speak, for qualifications, those are the two sources you want. Now, just very quickly, at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This verse will become important as we move along. And then Paul goes on to describe, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, etc., etc. I won't go through that entire list, nor will I compare that with the list found in Titus chapter 1. For our purposes, I just want you to be aware of that. Okay? Now, Chemnitz doesn't do this, but I'll do this very briefly. If you're looking for the origin of the pastoral office, you will actually find that in the good pastor himself. So Christ is the good shepherd, the good pastor. As Peter says, he is the pastor and bishop of our souls. So when he calls pastors into the office of the holy ministry or the pastoral office, he is calling us into his own office to be in his stead, that's in his place, and to conduct ourselves by his command. And that is then Chemnitz's threefold role of the pastor, uh, to conduct the pastoral office according to Christ's command, preaching the word faithfully, administering the sacraments rightly, and then executing the office of the keys, retaining or binding sin. So the office of pastor, or the office of the holy ministry, these titles used interchangeably, stems all the way back to Christ himself. Now Christ in John 21 says to Peter, feed my sheep. Whose sheep are they? Peter's sheep? Not strictly speaking. Strictly speaking, feed my sheep. They're Christ's sheep. He's the good shepherd. But he calls Peter to be a shepherd in his stead and by his command and to feed Christ's sheep in Christ's place according to Christ's command. Make sense? So there you can see right from the mouth of Christ, him instituting and calling Peter into the office of pastor. And that you can see the honor there that we are called to work for Christ, be in his office, feed his sheep. 
but there's also a humility there. They're not our sheep. They're the sheep that belong to the good shepherd. In that sense, we're under shepherds. And I even try to, I know we all just speak this way, but when I'm conscious of it, I try to not say things like, my church, my congregation, my people. When pastors say that, it always, even if I understand how they mean it, it always just rings a little bit false in my ears. It's not actually true. The congregation, the church, the people, all of the above belong to Christ, and we're here at his good pleasure, as will be made clearer. Okay, so that's one way to trace the office, and for me, I think that's the cleanest way. Of course, if you wanted to do so in a more expansive, exhaustive way, you can look at Jesus' calling of the twelve. And these twelve, of course, less Judas, Judas replaced by Matthias, those twelve are the apostolic ministry, okay, founded by Christ, the apostles, um, at the root of that word is sent, which we're going to meditate on that theme here in a moment. But these men are sent by Christ, and that apostolic office, they are sent to do what? Well, as you look through the scriptures, they are sent to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. They are sent to do the this do in remembrance of me in the Lord's, in the Lord's Supper. When Christ says this do, he's telling his ministers, this is what you are to do in remembrance of me. <clears throat> and also we see um, this in uh, his giving of the keys, which we'll have opportunity to look at in Matthew chapter 16. He gives them to Peter. The language is singular. In Matthew chapter 18, he gives them to all of his apostles. The language is plural. And from this, then we can connect John 20 with forgiving and retaining sins. He also tells his apostles to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So you can see, in other words, how Christ institutes the office and gives it its essential functions. It's a more exhaustive, expansive approach to the question of the office of the holy ministry, but you can trace this through the scriptures and see what he's doing. And then what you see in a text like um, uh, 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1 is you see the handoff taking place from the apostles down to other pastors. Paul himself called immediately, and that's a technical term meaning the Lord directly called St. Paul into the office. Remember St. Paul in Galatians saying, I neither learned this from man nor through man. He got it directly from Christ. And so you have this immediate calling of Christ through his apostles, Christ through uh, St. Paul, and, and it can go a little broader than that. But then you have a handoff from that generation of office bearers into what will formally then be the office of the holy ministry. The apostolic office being a more expansive office, a fuller office, um, and obviously accompanied by all kinds of miraculous gifts and signs and 
in some cases, the ability to heal or cast out demons. Whereas when that apostolic ministry transitions into the office of the holy ministry, many of those elements fall away. And what is simply given are the core elements of preaching, to summarize preaching, um, the word of God, repentance and forgiveness, administering the sacraments, and executing the office of the keys. So when you look at a text like 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1, the qualifications, you're looking at that handoff and what sort of man, men should be called into this office to continue the office of the holy ministry that all might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth in Christ Jesus. Does that help somewhat at least paint a, a broad picture of where the office originates from, how it's functioning, and I think that that might help us because a lot of that is a simply assumed um, as Chemnitz uh, takes us through his question and answers, page 28 and following. Let me pause there, see if you have any thoughts or any questions on that. Otherwise, um, we're going to continue on with Chemnitz. Everybody's okay? All right. So again... At the answer given under the question in paragraph 5, Paul commands Timothy and Titus to entrust the ministry to faithful and able men. All right, paragraph 6. Should then one who is somewhat endowed with those gifts on his own initiative and personal judgment without a special and legitimate call undertake and claim for himself the office of teaching in the church. What do you think? No. So we, have a, we tend to have a strong doctrine of the ministry. We tend to have a high doctrine of the ministry. Maybe not so much for the last 50 years, but in the history of the LCMS and the history of the Lutheran Church and the history of the Christian Church, there is this. And so it's, I mean, it would be unthinkable that someone in our congregations today would just stand up and say, you know, I think I'll be the pastor this week. But in confessions where there is a weak or low view of the office of the holy ministry, something not all that far does indeed happen. Someone says, you know, I think I'd like to be a pastor, or I think I'd like to start such and such a ministry, or um, maybe the head pastor of a large, quote-unquote, non-denominational congregation just says, hey, I see you're popular with the kids, why don't you be a pastor? And you see that none of this is done with any sense of formality or uh, even any recognition whatsoever that this is a biblical office given to us by Christ with certain qualifications included. So, very important for us when, you know, and again, if you're kind of, if you're out there maybe listening online and trying to sort through all of this, if you're at a church that doesn't have a doctrine of the holy ministry, doesn't follow what Christ has given, you should have red flags and warning bells going off. And you'll see the reason for that as we continue on. Okay, um, fitting and repeated through the next paragraphs is Romans uh, 10, 
15, and I'm simply going to read that for you. Paul writes, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? So that sending, properly speaking, is a sending done by Christ. Now, in the case of the apostles, as we mentioned, in the case of St. Paul, and again, I think there are others, but Christ calls them immediately. And what we mean by that is directly. Christ calls himself. But it is Christ who sends these men out. Here you can think of the sending of the twelve or the sending of the 70. Remember, they don't go unless they're sent. We'll have opportunity to see, but this follows all the way back to an Old Testament tradition, a tradition of, I mean, a scriptural tradition, obviously, but a tradition of hundreds and hundreds of years that a mark of a false prophet is he runs without being sent. So the idea that you are sent by Christ is foundational. Now, there is a second way in which Christ sends, and that's not immediately or directly himself, as in the case of the apostles or St. Paul, but immediately, that is, through the church, Christ sends. We're going to see that that can take different forms. It can be the church as a whole, or it can be the ministers of the church, but there's a formality the church, whether you're thinking of it being the voters' assembly or the congregation as a whole, or whether you're thinking of it being pastors or pastors in a supervisory role, the point being that the church has to send an individual in order for that ministry to be legitimate. Someone can't just wake up, go online to see if they've gotten any responses to their, to the, you know, little packets and applications they've signed out for work, see that their inbox is empty and say, you know what, I think I'm just going to be a pastor and walk out onto the street and start to preach and try to gather a congregation around them. Such a person is not sent. Okay, so that's the key here. Um, Romans 10, 15, uh, again, ties into the Old Testament. Jeremiah twenty three twenty one is listed there. You'll hear this, but you'll hear this in Jeremiah frequently. You'll hear this in Ezekiel frequently. God says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. So that's the demarcation of a false prophet. Um, understanding that where you're getting... Um, that there is actually not just a judgment of content that has to take place, but a judgment of office or authority that also has to take place. So, is this man sent by Christ? Is he a pastor in Christ's church? Does he have standing whatsoever that I should even consider what he's saying? Those are valid questions. They're not questions we frequently ask here in the U.S. because we tend to be anti-authoritarian and we tend to be pragmatic. Let me just judge what he's saying and then I'll judge if it's of value or not. And then by that I'll infer whether or not he's a legitimate pastor. 
That's putting the cart before the horse. And this, in many respects, is exactly what the devil does. He goes out and teaches you a bunch of truth um, without any authority to do so. Remember the demons proclaiming Jesus everywhere? They begin with the truth, don't they? Is Jesus having any of it? No, he tells them to be quiet because he knows what their MO is. They begin by telling you the truth, they sucker you in, and then they ruin it all with lies. And Christ isn't going to have anything of it because he knows their ways, but he also knows they have no office to speak for him or preach for him. No one sent the demons to go preach for him, so he's not having it. All right, And that's also then something we need to regain and be cognizant of, that it doesn't really matter what this person is saying. If they don't have standing, that is in and of itself a problem. To use the biblical language, if they haven't been sent, if they haven't been called by Christ and placed into this office. So that also for us means you need to be uh, quite discerning about what ways in which you listen to internet preachers. Because there is a panoply of internet preachers who have no call, or who may have a call but not to teach you, And you want to keep some of these lines in place as you're listening to them and taking in what they say. I'm not one of these that says, hey, you need to close yourself off to everybody. No, go listen to whatever might be edifying, whatever might be interesting, but listen critically and don't mistake someone online as being in the position of your pastor. That's not what God intends. He intends for you to meet in person with the congregation and have a flesh and blood pastor in front of you to care for you. All right? That's what God intends. So let's not delude ourselves with whatever's happening on the internet. Again, I'm not suggesting we have to cut ourselves off from that, but we do need to think critically and um, remember that no man on the internet uh, is my pastor unless he's my flesh and blood pastor. <laughs> okay. So that regaining the sense of the office is uh, very important for us. Now, once we're assured that the man has a legitimate call and he's been placed into the office by Christ through his church, now we go to that second criteria. Is what he's saying right? Is what he's saying and doing in keeping with the scriptures? And we ought to make a judgment there too. Um, Obviously, we don't judge if an otherwise faithful man makes this mistake or that mistake or has this idiosyncratic view or the other idiosyncratic view. Um, Pastors are in process, too, so we don't need to be hypercritical. But if a pastor is in error, we want to work to correct him. If he is stubborn and manifest in that error and won't cease from it, now you've got a different issue, don't you? Now you've got just not an incidental, accidental kind of mistake, which we find many faithful pastors falling into over centuries of time, um, and theologians, of course. But we find somebody who's hardened in their false and heretical view. And such a man we need to work to depose and remove from the office. But again, for us, I think in the LCMS, that's a rarer problem a less frequent problem than it is in other denominations. And a large reason for that is because of the way, the high view of the office we have and the way we train men to enter that office. <clears throat> it is possible, but 
much more difficult to fake your way through four years of seminary, two of which include field education under a pastor, one of which includes a vicarage under a pastor, etc., etc. All the other checks and balances we have do a pretty good job that I think our default position when it comes to LCMS pastors, we should trust them until proven otherwise. Okay, I see a couple hands. Um, Barry, you want to go? And Okay. What about uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 38? Uh, is it one he cites or is it a different one? Uh, it's, I don't know if he cites it. I'm okay. sorry. No I, it just came to mind. Uh, the, uh, where it's, um, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Mm. Uh, And then it goes on, uh, for the one who is not against us is for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here, casting out a demon isn't specific to the pastoral office. That's So it's a different category and it's a different way of thinking. And um, I think, without going into too much detail, what's in view there is uh, warning against sectarianism. So, hey, um, the work of Jesus is just limited to our little group or this little group. Paul faces this in Corinth, where there are some who are saying that they're of Apollos, and others are saying they're of Paul. Etc. So it's this sectarian idea of, hey, we're the legit guys, we're the only congregation or group of Christians or whatever you want to say that are really conducting the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus in something like Mark 9, like you just cited, is saying, no, it's way bigger than that. And so that's good. We want to imbibe that and remember that. Uh, but very clearly in context, there's nothing to do with the pastoral ministry as such. There's nothing to do even with the apostolic ministry as such in a text like that. But great question. I was going to ask the process in LCMS. We have two seminaries, and uh, does a candidate or a, one who goes into the, one of the two seminaries, do they, are they sponsored by a church? Is there a filtering process by a, you know, a, a pastor in a church? Mm-hmm. Um, and also on um, the number that go into the process, typically how many uh, completed? Uh, the, mic- the microphone's cutting in and out. I'm sorry. So just the last or the second question, last part of your question. Well, it has to do with the number of candidates or students uh, uh, that go into the seminaries. What percent come out as as pastors? Okay, great question. Yeah, I, I will probably miss some of the filtration steps, but it does begin that step number one, formally speaking, is to have the approval of your pastor. And to have your pastor's approval, I forget what the exact criteria is, something like you need to be a member in that congregation for at least two years. 
and the pastor has to give his stamp of approval, at which point it goes to the district. The district has an interview. They give their stamp of approval. The seminary makes a very preliminary examination, more along the lines of your academics and fitness. But there, is a inter- there are interviews, and there are times and places in which they can say, hey, you're going into this for the wrong reasons, or you're not really qualified for this, or um, you need to go complete this or that before you can be admitted. So already we've kind of hit three layers before we've even got there. And then there are, there are additional layers from passive layers. Like you have to be committed enough to learn Greek and Hebrew. Those are kind of passive layers. But like if you're just thinking you're going like to slump into this because it's an easy gig, there are parts of seminary that weed that out. Okay, And then the seminary itself has a number of filters, so to speak, that are more active and uh, intentional all the way through. Vicarage is a big one, actually. I mean, it, it is a big one because, and that's what they want. They tell Vicarage supervisors, like, hey, we need your very honest feedback. And if there's a problem, we need you to let us know. And that's where sometimes uh, the rubber really hits the road because... It's the first time in most cases that a man finds himself doing full-time ministerial work, tagging along with the pastor and realizing what it's really all about. You know, sometimes you can get tied up in this romantic idea that maybe it's about wearing a tweed jacket and sitting in a study and smoking a pipe and poring over uh, ancient documents and filling your head with all kinds of esoteric knowledge that people are going to be happy with hearing and marvel at your genius. Uh, You know, people get in their minds all sorts of ideas and then you come and it's like, no, it's kind of about a, a sweaty stained black shirt and shoes being worn out and pants muffed up because you've been moving tables and uh, oh, there's a hospital call, oh, there's a bad situation here, uh, okay, there's a wedding, that, you know, it's, you're getting pulled in a million directions at one time. And so that in itself is very eye-opening. And you do from time to time have guys say, I don't think I want to become a pastor. I want to move from the MDiv program to the Master of Arts program. I'll get my Master of Arts, and maybe I'll pursue studies in the same field or a different field. So there's, there's some self-weeding uh, out as well as some other weeding out. And I know there's one more part to your question. I'm sorry. But please, do you have a... Well, I, I just... you know, The end process is how many arrive at the ordination, and then there seems to be a balancing problem that might occur where there aren't enough churches calling... And there are pastors who are ready to be assigned. And, you know, mm-hmm. what happens to them then? Uh, do they go into these other fields then? Or, I mean, I don't, um, I don't have any official statistics on the rate of attrition through our seminary program. So I don't know. No doubt we have that data. Anecdotally, it would be something like um, less than 10% are weeded out over the course of four years. Um, less than one in 10 would be my guess. Uh, so a lot of that filtration happens up front, but it does happen through the seminary. And then, of course, um, you know, another interesting statistic would be how many guys make it past their first few years in the ministry. And that's kind of another filter in our Lord's way of doing things. So, um, and then I'm sorry, I just lost track of the add-on. You had added on uh, something besides that just now. Well, it, it has to do with the 
pastors who there's not a church to assign them. They're, oh, they're, yes. They, I mean, is there a pool of pastors? I mean, uh, it seems like there's a capacity under or over at times. So There is. There is. Uh, every. In fact, I think that the trend has been for quite a while now, the general trend has been that there are more churches calling than men available. Not, not by a terrible amount, but that's generally been the case. There have been a year or two that I've been aware of since I've been in the ministry where there have been more men than calls. And generally, the seminary just works very closely with that, those men, put them in a holding pattern because inevitably a call is going to come in. Uh, and so, yeah, that kind of tends to just get worked out. But And without going into too much depth and detail, obviously things are moving rapidly on the ground as our culture shifts and changes, as the church, uh, as, as demographics move, as the, the nature of... Um, the average American's relationship to the church, whatever that might mean, shifts and changes. So it's a constantly moving thing. And in many cases, uh, ministries are looking less traditional overall in the sense that you might have one pastor and one church. <clears throat> you might get called as an associate to a larger church. You might be one of many associates at a larger church. I don't mean many, I mean a couple associates at a larger church, or you might be on the other end of the extreme, you might be called to a, a tri-point or even quad-point parish where um, you're going to be driving to uh, two, three, four different small congregations. Um, not any one of those congregations could support you independently or support the ministry independently, but collectively they can. So there's all sorts of that kind of creativity that goes on too. Okay, great questions. Um, was there anything else or we're okay? All right, so jumping back into um, Chemnitz. Again, the point here being that uh, a man should not throw himself forward into the office as if he had that authority or right just simply because he's a Christian. Um, he should be sent. And um, at paragraph 7... Chemnitz has this question, are they to be heard or can they be profitably heard by the church who have no proof of a legitimate call? And again, here we're talking about public ministry. So think, you know, somebody preaching in a pulpit or teaching in a church um, in a formal pastoral sense, I'm really saying. And the answer here is no. Again, quoted Romans uh, 14 and 15, which I just read, um, Jeremiah 27, 14 through 15. So do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You will not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But they prophesy falsely in my name, in order that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. Okay, so office is important, and then the content or faithfulness of their message is important. Those are both key aspects. Chemnitz continues giving an answer at 
paragraph 7. And for this reason, the prophets and the apostles so earnestly emphasized the prerogatives of their call at the beginning of their writing. So you can think how frequently Paul does this, but especially in a text like Galatians. Uh, John does this as well in his uh, first epistle. Often there is this emphasis on the the fact that they hold this office, thus they should be listened to. So again, in the words of Chemnitz, they earnestly emphasize the prerogatives of their call at the beginning of their writings. He continues, And experience shows that they who thrust themselves into ecclesiastical functions without a legitimate call and regular call experience little blessing of God and contribute little to the upbuilding of the church. Yeah, and in many cases, they divide the church. And maybe even shrink the church, so to speak. Okay, so I think that that's all fairly, should be fairly straightforward. Um, this is uh, this is the reason why even as a pastor you, f- you frequently hang your call document in your study because that serves many purposes. Uh, but for you as a pastor, it assures you that God has in fact called you immediately to this congregation, and so you have a job to do, whether people like it or not. Uh, God supports you, and God has called you there. And so to be faithful and execute your office um, in, in right worship of him. And that call can also remind you, um, it can set boundaries. Hey, here's what I'm given to do, and these other things I'm not given to do. So it sets some boundaries for you as a pastor. And it can encourage you. Sometimes when you feel like it's a disaster, uh, and, and you feel like, uh, well, maybe it may be of my own fault I've messed things up, or maybe not of my own fault. Maybe I've conducted myself rightly, but everything's a mess. Either way, it's a mess. Uh, you can remember that uh, you have, in fact, been called by Christ through his church, and it may not be going according to your plan, but it's going perfectly well according to his plan. And there are um, instances of this in the scriptures, not least of which our Lord himself, who after one sermon is nearly hurled off a cliff. Do you recall that? And after another sermon is abandoned by his congregation of 5,000 to the point where even his own disciples must be asked, are you also taken off? (laughs) So uh, attaching too much importance to human notions of success can be deadly. Uh, It can be deadly, especially to the ministry. So faithfulness is the criteria. If growth happens, that's God's business. Um, If it doesn't happen, that's God's business. Important things to remember. Okay, on to paragraph 8. Here is the question, but Paul says... 1 Timothy 3.1, he that desires the office of bishop desires a good work. Is it therefore necessary for one to wait until he is called? The answer, 
to desire the office of bishop is not to thrust oneself into ecclesiastical functions without a legitimate call. But if one has learned and understand the fundamentals of Christian doctrine and is somewhat endowed with the gift of teaching, when he offers his service to God and the church, he thereby seeks nothing else than that God would declare through a legitimate or regular call whether he wants to use his service in church. And he ought to be so minded that if a call does not follow his request, he does not cunningly work his way in. All right, so it's a good and noble thing to desire the office of a pastor, to, be, to, to want to be a pastor. So what you do is you go about those steps and you see if God through his church will have you. And you don't really know that until you've received a pastoral call. You don't really know that God wants you to be a pastor. You know that you want to be a pastor. You might think that God has been, you know, sort of placing these meditations on your heart and maybe leading you down the path to go to seminary and opening various doors for you, but you don't ultimately know that he wants you to be a pastor in his church until you are looking at a call document from a congregation. That's when you know that God has immediately called you into the office of the pastoral ministry. Okay, so that just all puts that um, in proper one of the things that the LCMS pastors have, uh, we've fallen woefully short on is this, I, we, we've fallen into a pseudo-Pentecostal idea of this where God has called me in my heart to be a pastor. And the implication of that is, well, if God has called you in your heart to be a pastor, then don't let anything get in your way. Even if you're pastor of the district or the seminary or whoever tells you no, you must obey God and not man, so keep going. So we've really gotten into this idea, and it's a terrible idea, of this sort of internal calling. Uh, if that's true, then it must also have its reality in other vocations, which we expressly deny. That God is specifically speaking to you outside of the scriptures, laying things upon your heart like, I want you to be a dentist. No, no, not an orthodontist, a dentist. Uh, God doesn't do that. It's why, it's why in the language of vocation, we don't really refer to vocations in the church the way the world refers to vocations. Okay, whether, whether you're an accountant or a doctor or a farmer or a trash man or a lawyer, that's not properly speaking your vocation. If it were, then it's a holy calling for you to be that thing and no other. So you could never cease from being a trash man. Okay? Your vocation, rather, is deeper than that. If you're the head of a household, your vocation is to provide for your family. Strictly speaking, God doesn't care if you provide by being a trash man or a lawyer or a, an accountant or a dentist. So vocation is at a deeper level, um, and it is not one of these things that can be movable. So you don't say, I feel... You know, if a Christian said, I feel God calling me into, to become a really, really wealthy businessman, you'd go, okay, well, that's not how God works. Well, no different than when a guy says, um, I feel God really, really tugging at my heart to be a pastor. That's not how that works. 
God doesn't work apart from his external means in some sort of voodoo way inside of us. So I love this language of the scripture. Just own it. He that desires the office of the bishop. You desire it. What is that desire? It's a desire for a good work. It should be commended. It's wonderful that you would desire such a high and noble calling. It's wonderful that you would desire that. Um, Go for it. And let's see if God has a call in store for you. Okay? That's, that's it. And it's wonderful. So you either go to the seminary with that idea or you um, don't go to the seminary. Uh, but ultimately, it's God who calls. Okay, I think I've uh, belabored that point. On to paragraph 9. Here's the question. But all believers are called priests. And three references are given where believers are, are called priests. Revelation 1.6 and Revelation 5.10 and 1 Peter 2.9. Here's the question. Have all, therefore, a general call to the ministry? Chemnitz writes, All we who believe are indeed spiritual priests, but we are not all teachers. Now, he has two important texts here. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, uh, and I'm going to include 28 because it shows up in a few minutes. 28 through 30. Here's what Paul writes. That God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Okay, so what's the point? Just because you're a spiritual priest doesn't mean you're given to do the office. As a spiritual priest, we have a variety of gifts and strengths and roles. Okay, That's the point. So you can't be assured that just because I'm a priest, I have everything. <laughs> That's not the case. All right, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 is the next quoted. <clears throat> Here St. Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So it's Christ himself who gives to different men different offices, different aptitudes, and he gives these to the church. Okay, so again, it's just not a, uh, both, of the, both quotations here is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. When you are baptized, you are not ordained into the office of the holy ministry. Uh, sometimes we've been taught this in the Lutheran church, and it's, it's just terrible. Um, you're baptized, you're ordained into the office of the holy ministry, but since we all can't be up there at once, we've got to elect one poor sap to go up there and do it for us. I don't know where that idea of the ministry comes from, but it's not the pages of Holy Scripture. Okay? The qualifications for the office of the Holy Ministry is that only particular males are qualified for it. So, so much for being baptized into the office of the Holy Ministry because females and the vast majority of males are precluded from that office. So we can see how wrong-headed that is. Chemnitz uh, continues, and Peter explains himself, all Christians are priests, not that all should function without difference in the ministry of the word and of the sacraments, without a special call, but that they should offer spiritual sacrifices. And then two quotes given, references given to spiritual sacrifices, Romans 12.1 and Hebrews 13. 
verses 15 through 16. So the point being that as, as baptized Christians, we become royal priests and we are given to conduct ourselves via spiritual sacrifices. That's what's given to us in baptism. Okay, I, I, I have been called by Christ into the office of pastor, but if I were to be removed from that office, I remain a royal priest called to conduct the spiritual sacrifices of our common Christian office. Make sense? So you're baptized into the royal priesthood given to do spiritual sacrifices. All right? And then of that, a very narrow group are selected by Christ to proclaim the gospel, administer the sacraments, execute the office of the keys. All right, and then at uh, paragraph 10, here's the question. Yet all Christians have a general call to proclaim the virtues of God. 1 Peter 2, 9, uh, to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we all, all Christians have a general call to proclaim the virtues of God and especially family heads. Looking at, looking at fathers in particular, falls to the female if there is no, no one in that office. To instruct their households. And then Deuteronomy 6, 7, 1 Corinthians 14, 35 are mustered to support that. All right, so what do we make of this? Chemnitz writes, it is true that all Christians have a general call to proclaim the gospel of God. Uh, Romans 10, 9 referenced. To speak, the and that's um, with the mouth confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. With the heart believes, with the mouth confesses. Okay, to speak the word of God among themselves. Ephesians 5.19 To admonish each other from the word of God. Colossians 3.16 To reprove, Ephesians 5.11, Matthew 19.15 And to comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 And family heads are enjoined to do this with the special command that they give their households the instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 But the public ministry of the word and of the sacraments in the church is not entrusted to all Christians in general, as we have already shown. And again, references to 1 Corinthians 12.28 and Ephesians 4.12. For a special or particular call is required for this. Romans 10.15, which is you have to be sent. You have to be qualified via 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Okay, so what do we make of that? Two things, that as royal priests, as Christians, we are all called to proclaim the gospel in do the, do the work of the word in and among ourselves with a special emphasis put on heads of the household that they're to be guiding their families in accordance with the word of God. But all of that's quite different and aside from the unique and peculiar office of the public ministry of word and sacrament. Okay, let's pause there. If for no other reason, I can sip some coffee. Yeah, please. A couple of hands. Um. Yeah, I got a question. What, what do you do if you, your church loses a pastor and you don't have another one? And what if the pastor's sick? What is the congregation supposed to do? Yeah, great questions. Great questions. So in the case where a pastor is not able to conduct his office, there's lots of different ways you can go. The most common would be you try to um, get, 
get someone to fill in for him. So we call this pulpit supply. You can grab retired pastors or pastors that are between calls or maybe a pastor who's come out in our case to Concordia to do some advanced studies. You get some sort of fill in that's acceptable to the pastor and to the board of elders. The pastor's incapacitated. The congregation just needs to take that over via the board of elders in our, in our way of doing it. Yeah. Um, now, if you become vacant, if a pastor takes another call or retires and you have a vacancy there, um, then the congregation goes through a call process. And that's always written into the uh, governing documents, uh, usually the bylaws of the congregation, what that call process is like. So the congregation begins that formal process wherein you narrow it down until you have a candidate. That candidate is approved by the voters, and then a call is issued. When a pastor has a divine call, this is another way we botch this as modern Lutheran pastors. Um, when a pastor has a divine call, he'll often say, well, I'm going to prayerfully consider this and see which place God wants me to serve. No. No. You have forgotten Sola Scripture and you're completely misleading your people because now you're teaching your people that in every decision of their life, they're to prayerfully consider and discern which thing God wants them to do. Stay in California or move to Texas. Obviously, it's stay in California. Or have a hot dog for lunch or raviolis for lunch. I don't know. I've got to prayerfully consider so the Lord can tell me what to do. All of this is nonsense and it flows from the pastor who does this nonsensical thing when he has two calls and teaches his people forever that this is how you're supposed to look at things. And it's not. What happens when you're a pastor and you've received two calls is God has said, I'm pleased to have you serve in this congregation or that congregation. You choose. Now, you can prayerfully consider, but not to discern the will of God, not to get out your chicken bones and divine the will of God, okay? What are, you to, what are you to prayerfully consider? That God would open your eyes to the best use of your abilities in one place or another. That's what you're, you're praying for wisdom there, and you're seeking that out by talking with your congregation. And there are some times where a man's ministry um, at a congregation kind of comes to a natural conclusion, or at least in the sort of rhythmic ebb and flow of life together, the congregation says, we love you, we'd be happy to have you stay, but things are wrapped up, we understand if you need to go. And a pastor listens to that, and, he, and a pastor's whole, I mean, the whole determination, of course, he's probably balancing a family and everything else, so there's a lot, but a pastor's really looking at this via stewardship. Where do I feel like my gifts could be used? And he's trying to take an honest evaluation of himself. You know, Where do I feel like my gifts could be used better? Maybe I'm in a congregation that requires a ton, but I'm getting old and tired and can't keep up with it anymore. Okay, That might be reason to sort of demote yourself down to a smaller congregation that you can handle so they can get some young blood in to run things the way things need to be ran. All right, That's the, what I mean kind of by an example of this ebb and flow in our life together. Uh, we want to be cognizant of these things. We can help each other with these things because we're all on the same team, church and ministry, and we're all working together, and the goal is to get people into heaven. So, uh, yeah, a pastor then, when he has two calls from God, God's saying, I'm pleased to have you here or here, and if you say, turn to God and say, well, which one would you have me do? Guess what you're going to hear? Crickets. Because God does not tolerate stupidity. He has already said to you, I'll, you I'm pleased to have you here or here. All right? Now you make a decision. 
and you just entrust yourself to God. And now as you teach your people that, you realize that that's the essence of all of life. God leaves us bound when it comes to saving ourselves. That's above us. He's the one that does that. But he leaves us free in those things that are below us. Who you're going to marry, where you're going to move, where you're going to go to school, what kind of job you're going to do. If you're a pastor, you're going to serve at this call or that if you've been given to. Um, All of that's below us. And what God wants us to do is make a good decision on the basis of stewardship, collective wisdom, and then to entrust ourselves to, to him. So that when we finally do make a decision, like in the case of a pastor, I'll stay. Or in the case of a pastor, I'll go. And immediately it's disaster. You go, the human impulse is to go, well, that was the wrong decision. I obviously didn't discern God's will. No. No. God left you free. You made that decision. Now it's time to trust him. Trust him that he's going to back you up, go or stay, whatever you do. And the same thing is true all the way through all of life. Who you're going to marry. We don't have a clue who we should marry. It's like one of the dumbest things in the world. Um, You throw yourself into marriage not knowing in the least what you're going to get into. Uh, uh, You have children in the same way. You pick a vocation in the same way. You pick a place to live in the same way. We don't have a clue. We do the best we can trying to be wise, faithful stewards of what God has given. But the rest, we simply entrust ourselves into his hands, whether it's good or bad, whether he gives or takes away, we bless the name of the Lord. So this is beautiful, scary freedom, and yet it's perfect opportunity to entrust ourselves to him. So hopefully that kind of answers your question. Well, I want to know, what, what is a church supposed to do if they don't have any incapacitated? You have plans for me that I would not. <laughs> no, no, I'm thinking, you know, because it's one thing here because we have a seminary. I mean, a college close by. Yeah. But what about in Alaska, Canada, the north, like North Dakota, places that nobody lives? Okay, so what would what would often happen there is the nearest pastor. This would be some kind of arrangement like yeah. this, okay? But the nearest pastor, let's say he's four hours away, would pledge himself to come. Uh, one Sunday a month uh, to make the trip. He'd, be, he'd get there in the afternoon. You'd have your divine communion service in the afternoon. All right. The rest of the weeks, you would, you would, um, the services would be non-communion services, and they would be conducted by, let's say, one of the elders. The elder could read a sermon um, of an of a LCMS pastor of Luther or somebody something like this, in order that the people would be getting the word of God. He's not properly speaking preaching to them. He's just a reader of that sermon. So I, this this um, this actually happened not that long ago, a few months ago. I got contacted by an elder in a congregation. He said we're vacant. We can't get anyone here. Can and, and I've been assigned to do to do the sermon you know, to be responsible for the sermon. Can I read one of your sermons? Yeah, great, no problem. So that's a congregation going through that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you can get several pastors, so you're not just communing once a month. You might get a more frequent communion if you can get them to share that load and travel around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good question. Okay, anything else? Everybody doing Okay. We're at time, so next week, let's pick up here at, uh, and we're, you know, we're taking our time. I think we're, <laughs> we're going to move a little more quickly as we progress, but I think why we're taking our time is because it has been very infrequently that we've talked about the Office of the Holy Ministry. 
very infrequently that we've had open, candid conversation about these things. Again, because they just haven't been popular. Well, too bad. We'll do it. We'll enjoy it. The Lord be with you. And also-